Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hey everybody, this is Tim Chavez from Faith Matters. For this episode, we were honored to bring on our good friend, Richard Osler. Aubrey and I first got to know Richard when we were interviewed about our faith journey on his podcast, Listen, Learn, and Love. We found him to be truly empathetic, thoughtful, and loving, and we've remained good friends ever since. If you'd like to listen to that episode on Richard's podcast, it's episode number 199. We also re-aired much of it on this podcast as episode number 34. Richard is a former YSA bishop whose ministry has focused on all types of Latter-day Saint journeys, and especially on those of people who have felt marginalized in any way. In addition to his podcast, he's now written two books, both under the title Listen, Learn, and Love. The first is subtitled Embracing LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, and the second, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. Both are available at Deseret Book and were published by Cedar Fort. Our conversation with Richard was about his second book, which was recently released. In it, he addresses questions around cultural issues, like emphasis on callings, women's experience, mental illness, length of missionary service, the repentance process, and the experience of those with doubts and questions. We felt like this was a really helpful discussion, and Richard's unique gift of empathy and his love of the church combined to give really powerful insights into how we can all contribute to improving church culture. We were really grateful to spend this time with Richard, someone who's shown such Christ-like love to us and so many others. And with that, we'll jump right in. We really hope you enjoy this episode with Richard Osler. Okay. Hey, Richard. How are you? Good. Glad to be here. Yes. It's, it's been quite a, quite a while since we've been together in person. It's yes. wonderful to see you again. It is great to be here. Thanks for all the good work you and Aubrey are doing on Faith Matters, terrific work. Oh, of course. Like yeah. And, and thank you. Yeah. I We were talking about this. You've now produced over 500 episodes <laughs> yeah. of your of your podcast, Listen, Learn, and Love. That's, yeah. that's a real labor of love. So we're just giving a platform to people share their stories. Yeah. I'm glad to do it. Yeah. It's incredible. And I, I think, I don't want to tell your story for you, but I think this book that we're going to talk about grew out of the grew out, out of the podcast, did it not? Could you maybe maybe give us a little bit of background on how this sort of second Listen, Learn, and Love book came to be? Yeah. So this book is called Listen, Learn, and Love, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture. And in the process of serving in a YSA assignment and then hearing so many stories on the podcast, I recognize that it's often the cultures, I think you to understand, many of your listeners understand, that makes it difficult for some to participate fully in the church. And we can all look inward and see what we can do better to improve the culture. So that's what this book is about. Yeah, I absolutely, I absolutely loved it. Um, I felt like, I mean, each chapter sort of addresses a different aspect of the culture that could be improved. And all of it, I just related to so much. And it was a very, you have a particular way of being so gentle when you uh, you know, ask things of people. And I felt like I was being, you were asking things of me that in a way that didn't offend me or make me defensive in any way. Yeah. So I really appreciated it. Thank you. I feel like something that I've learned from listening to your podcast is just how to, how to, how to listen without having an answer. And that's a really uncomfortable space. And maybe it's a personality thing. I don't know, but it's been really good. I needed 500 episodes, I think, to like <laughs> learn how to hear that model, like to hear, hear what it sounds like to just 
validate an experience. And I know that that's something that's really important to you. So would you just start with that? Talk about why, how, how is validating someone's experience sometimes more healing than even having an answer? Well, Aubrey, I, I think, um, Listening isn't a skill that's developed very much, I think, in LDS culture. I think we're better at developing more public attributes. We value rightly so wonderful men and women that are good public speakers, give good lessons. We we role model that. But I don't think we role model some of these more quieter gifts that can be equally as needed in people's lives like listening. I think we all have the ability to listen. Steve Covey taught me a lot about listening. That's where some of the principles that I learned came from. But as a, in my YSA assignment, the longer I served, that was a three-year assignment, the more I listened and mm-hmm. often resisted my temptation to give a suggestion or turn it back to me and my life story. And often it took multiple visits with the YSA to sort of get them to tell their whole story. And I could understand the totality of their situation, the road they were walking on. And then they turn it back to me and I'd sometimes turn it back to them and say, <laughs> what do you think? What are your feelings about what you should do? What are your impressions? And often they had the very impressions I had. Um, And sometimes when you sort of own your own impressions versus being told what they are, you're better at making decisions going forward. Now, at times I gave advice, and most of that advice was principle-based versus prescriptive. And I learned that Sometimes people would open up about difficult church experiences, and I, my first reaction was to defend the church. Mm. But over time, I learned the best thing I can do is just sit with them and honor how they feel, even if I haven't had that experience or feel the same way. And it didn't drive any wedge between them and the church deeper, but it was a measure of healing that allowed them to move on. Just having a priesthood leader, in my case, or a trusted adult say, I sit with you in your pain, now, honor that. I won't dismiss that. It just was the healing often that allowed someone to move on. So we can do a lot of good by listening. Wow. I love that. Um, there was, I, I was just going to yeah, say, I at the very beginning of the book, I really like that you started with this idea that you're going to talk about some things that make people uncomfortable. Like they're going to make, it, they're going to be things that you probably notice yourself feeling defensive about. And so I, I wonder if you could just address that a little bit because Something we've noticed and talked a lot about even on the podcast is that a lot of times we associate discomfort with the loss of the spirit. And so in these very um, vulnerable situations that you bring up in the book, I think that if you're always recognizing your own discomfort as a loss of the spirit, it can really inhibit the way you can be used as a tool in God's hand. So can you just kind of guide us? Like, what? How do you think about that discomfort and how do you recognize the spirit when you're feeling uncomfortable? It's a great question, and it's something I love this quote, and it's in the book also from Elder Uchtdorf. It's how often has the Holy Spirit tried to sell us something we needed to know, but couldn't get past the massive iron gate of what we thought we already knew. Mm. So at age 60 and being male and kind of the center of privilege, I kind of thought I kind of knew it all. <laughs> and sometimes I'd get rebukes from the Spirit, especially when I started to meet with LGBTQ Latter day Saints in my ward. Um, And gradually, I I sort of realized that often I had to, I developed the trap of unearned opinions is what I call it. (laughs) Um, Developing opinions about groups of people without ever talking to lots of people in that group, undocumented workers, black teenagers, LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. And you have to sort of say, I'm not going to develop any opinions. 
until I, you know, I'm not just going to start stating stuff. And often then that led into sort of your point is sometimes when I was hearing something new, I remember doing podcasts with a couple of black Latter-day Saints, great, you know, active Latter-day Saints, and I felt uncomfortable. And I recognized that uncomfortableness was the needed changes I need to make in my own opinions or my own conclusions. And it's painful to realize something I had held on to to a long time. I needed to let go. Why? Because it would allow me to better mourn, bear, and comfort and not add to someone's burdens with my unearned conclusions, in this case, about Black Latter-day Saints. So I think it's a principle that's consistent with discipleship. But sometimes when we feel that that uncomfortableness, we might just, like you said, say, well, that's the Spirit telling me to leave. Mm -hmm. But often that's the Spirit telling me something I need to change within myself that I've maybe perhaps innocently picked up and that I need to change. Sometimes I even... I think of our Book of Mormon analogy, holding onto the iron rod, which I'm trying to do. But I think sometimes I've been in the great and spacious building at the same time, mm. um, meaning that because I understand the restored doctrine and have the benefit of this restored church in my life, sometimes I think it makes it harder for me to look inward because I have this beautiful restored doctrine and I'm holding onto the iron rod the best I can to recognize there may be things that sort of represent the pride of the world and I need to dismiss from me so I can better be a better disciple of Christ. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes those opinions or judgments or conclusions that we have aren't like super present for us. They can almost be subconscious. Um, in one of the early chapters, you bring up uh, several questions. I, I think you probably have, you know, 15, 16 in there. that are like little things that sometimes we think, and just to list a few that we thought were really interesting. So when you see a wedding invitation, are you scanning to see if they're being sealed? Um, are you checking glasses at the glasses at a restaurant to see what people are drinking? Um, when somebody posts something that would might be a non-typical Sabbath activity, are you saying, "Oh, was that posted on a Sunday?" What, what you know, what were they doing? Um, are you looking for garment lines beneath people's clothes? Um, these are things that I think. Um, a lot of times we don't, you know, we don't express them out loud. But how could it? How might it be damaging to ourselves and even to others to have those thought processes, you know, going through our minds, even if we're not then, you know, commenting to someone? Great question. And that's part of chapter one, which is improving our culture to be non-judgmental. And I just recognize we have a way of seeing sometimes that we measure people um, in different ways. Keeping my covenants doesn't give me the ability or the right to judge other people if they're keeping their covenants. And sometimes that way of seeing that you just listed causes people to feel othered or feel like they're under the microscope in our congregation. And so I I think Elder Uchtdorf has this wonderful quote that says, there should be no, um, no measure, at the, I'm paraphrasing, at the entrance to an LDS congregation to measure the height of your yes. testimony. Oh, yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> And so I think he teaches a principle there that everybody should feel welcome in the congregation. I think the gate should be wide at the congregation. There's really no belief or behavior hurled, I think, to be welcome in an LDS congregation. The gate narrows for to go to the temple where there is a belief and behavior hurl. But sometimes you want to bring that narrowing back into the culture of our congregation. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I picked up on Twitter was we're called to be gatherers, not sifters. Um, I think Christ perfectly demonstrated that in his ministry. He didn't give up the commandments to do that, 
I think he just made space for everybody to feel welcome so they could make their way forward. So for some, it may take a while to figure out the garment wearing and just how to make that work in their life that may be a little different than I, that it's working for me in my life, but to give them space to do that. Yeah. And all the things you mentioned there is we're all on our unique road. Yeah. And just sort of as a follow-up, so you alluded to this scripture in the book. I don't think you quoted it explicitly, but in DNC 88, every man who has been warned should warn his neighbor, right? So <laughs> to the person that is saying, and, and I think there is a charitable way to look at this where it's like, I'm not just judging them. Like I'm worried about them. You know, I'm warning them because based on what I understand, their long-term salvation and exaltation could be at stake. And so I, it's... It's my responsibility to to say something when I when I see something. Oh, I loved you, know. you asked that question, um, Tim. <laughs> yeah, how do you how do you deal with that? I love that, um, and I recognize that a lot of people are coming from this to a point of love. They care about other people and they want them to have all the blessings they have as members of the church. Personally, for me, I've replaced that to love my neighbor. Mm-hmm. I think when I have this non agenda love towards people. Um, I can, I don't want to use this in a manipulative way, but I can affect their behavior more than if I warn them. My experience is people already have been warned. They're often walking encyclopedias on the doctrine of our church, the rules, whatever. Um, They're usually not unaware of something. So I've found that if I just show them this non-agenda love, that that's the best way to just help them make their way forward. A lot of people that in my circle seem to be making, made better decisions in the YSA words. They just felt my non-agenda love Mm -hmm. and I will walk with you. And they kind of self-determined the best way to move forward without me sort of getting in their face. I just don't think that generally changes people's behavior. Now, our leaders of our church may have a slightly different responsibility to, to be a voice of warning for the world and for our church. And so maybe you know, they can still love and do that too. So maybe there's a little difference for everybody is on that. I don't want to say what I just said works for everybody, but I think there's a range. So I just replace that with, I love my neighbor. And I think I can affect more people's lives for good with just on agenda love, Mm -hmm. um, that I'll be a trusted person in their life and a safe person for them to open up to me if they feel they need my help or perhaps even a course um, change that they felt I've always been safe. And so maybe it's easier, easier to save face with somebody who hasn't ever said, I told you so, or you're going to be back one day, just someone who's walking with you. Yeah. And I imagine this is something that comes up a lot in, in your, in the interviews. And I've heard several on your podcast. Can you just talk specifically about what it feels like to be on the receiving end of someone who is trying to influence you to change your life to change your decisions. Cause I, I know, I, I really do think this is probably grounded in a lot of fear, but also just like really it is the best of intentions. Like they're trying to show, I think a lot of times we feel like we want to show tough love to influence someone to, or, or to, you know, in, in the gentlest way possible to call them to repentance. And, and so I, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about like what that actually feels like when you're on the receiving end of someone knowing better for your life, what you should do. I think one of the greatest things you can do as a parent is create a family culture. This is close to what you're asking where, because you want your kids, if you're raising teenage kids or young kids, listeners to make good decisions. And, and then, but I think one of the greatest things you can do as a parent is lay out a set of principles that these are family rules. But I, if you 
you know, if you mess up in this way or this way or feel this way, I want you to talk to me about that. And this is what I'll say to you ahead of time. If they mess up with pornography or something or mm. have deep questions about our faith, those are two different things. I don't want to pretend those are even the same. Just that I will talk to you about these kind of things. If we're always sort of tough loving everybody, I think it creates a culture around us as parents and local leaders, perhaps that we're not safe to open up to. Um because we might feel prejudged that I'm not sure I can open up yeah. to somebody if all I'm hearing is tough love from them for everybody in their circle. Wow. I love that. I, I love that you talked toward the end of the book. You bring in, um, you talk about Tom Christopherson's experience with his yes. family. And and I, I will never forget what his mom said about, like, this is an opportunity for our whole family. So this is, Tom was in this relationship, a same-sex relationship. And and um, he says his mom called this family meeting and says, like, we, this is our opportunity to show that, that there's nothing anyone can do that will take them outside of the circle of our love. And like, that will always be the priority. And I, I love that, like preemptively having that conversation with our own kids so that they don't feel pushed away. You I know? love that, Aubrey. Yeah. Well, thank you. I, I really liked that part of the book. I, I That just like, that resonates and feels like, it feels like a way to draw out the best of all of us. And something that Adam Miller has taught us a long time ago on a podcast was just that sometimes we use the law to sort of prop ourselves up. And and so what I liked about this like unconditional love is that it really like requires some humility because it feels good to feel right and and trusting that someone might be able to find their own answers and that you don't know best really is challenging because it requires a lot of humility. So and I you know, I just think sometimes we set up these false dichotomies that to fully love and follow God, I need to stop loving some of his children. And I just, you know, I, Michael Wilcox, one of your guests, is one of my favorite institute teachers. He quoted in Moses, and I can't remember, but it's in my first book, where in one part of Moses, those are reverse, where it talks about loving others before loving God. Now, we talk about the scripture in the New Testament where God is mentioned first, and then, but I just think the best way I can show God that I love him and I'm following him is how I treat other people. And so I just think we sometimes complicate things yeah. um, in our culture that maybe don't need to be complicated. Back to your scripture, Tim, about Warren. I just, and it's relieving sometimes to think I don't have to save anybody. I just can love everybody. Yeah. And, and maybe my love can influence in a positive way that my warning never could. Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting because I, you know, even if you can't, if if you really are in this conundrum and you cannot decide the best way to show love, maybe it's just a matter of looking at the fruits. Like, you know, you can, you can, I can see how you could read the scriptures and like logically come to the conclusion that the best thing you can do is exhort someone to repent, you know, but like if the fruits of that look like they're not sitting with you at dinner anymore, like how, you know, how is that a, how is that a productive way to show love. Agreed. So yeah, I think that I think that was a that was a really helpful chapter for me. Yeah. Um I think I think it's the very next chapter um where you talk about um you talk about sort of this culture of callings <laughs> and how we sort of validate ourselves and others potentially based on the callings that they've received over time and this sort of hierarchical, you know, uh church, you know, structure. Um, it's something that you were super vulnerable about, vulnerable about in the book, and I really appreciated it. Would you mind relating some of your feelings? Yeah. I this? mean, this is the most vulnerable chapter I've ever written of any book. It really, it really was. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I just really felt impressed it. to be vulnerable. I, this chapter is called measuring progress by coming to Christ and not by callings. And the principle is 
I should establish self-worth in me based on things that are in my control, which is developing Christ-like attributes. I think that's preach my gospel, chapter six, and coming under Christ and not by church callings. And I got hardwired in Latter-day Saint culture as a youth to measure my progress in life by church callings. Hardwire is the best way I can describe it. It just got ingrained in me. Mm -hmm. And I talk in the book about innocent things that happen in my life where that just, and I've been going, you know, I started going to therapy to try to get unwired from this. And I've had some really triggering experiences that I open up in the book about that sort of added to this. And I recognize this is part of our culture. It may affect women too, but men particularly are often judged, measured externally as well as I'm talking about internally by callings. Now, in saying that, I don't want to take anything away from anybody that has a calling. He or she needs all the support that they can get. But we just need to create a culture that everybody's equally valued, everybody's equally needed, everybody's voice is just as important. The person in Relief Society or Elders Quorum that's never served in any sort of leadership calling. Um, culturally, a lot of peoples get othered in the process of calling or the discussions in church. And it's a real vulnerable chapter for me to write, and I'm still a work in progress. Um, so it's just something I think we can improve on. What were some of the steps that you took, um, even with your therapist, if, if it's okay, Good. to rewire your, your thinking on this? I, You know, it's interesting. I started to study Preach My Gospel Chapter 6, if that's the right one, that just talks about developing Christ-like attributes. Yeah. And I said, that's where I need to establish my worth and my relationship with my wife and my responsibility as a father. Those are all things in my control. Um, and I think it's good to establish self-worth on things that are in your control mm-hmm. and not things that are out of your control. Yeah. And my you know, the kind of callings I would receive or wouldn't receive are not in my control. I mean, I guess I need to be worthy and have a temple recommend to be considered for <laughs> callings. So some of that's in my control, but a lot isn't. So that's what I've tried to do, Tim, is just focus on developing Christ-like attributes, lifting the burdens of others, amplifying the voice. This is probably one of the reasons I connected with LGBTQ Latter-day Saints and and Black Latter-day Saints and all the chapters in this book and all the guests on the podcast, because even sort of in the bullseye of Latter-day Saint privilege, I felt marginalized. I felt othered. I felt things that I, you know, a lot of people would never feel in my, and I think it just opened my heart that others could be having difficult experiences at church. And because I felt that pain, and I mean, I it gave me more tools to sit with other people in their pain. So I'm grateful for the painful experience that I've had as part of Latter-day Saint culture in some ways, because it's not theoretical for me when someone says I've had a harmful experience or a woman who talks to me about what it's like to be a woman in the church. Um, I'm not a woman in the church, and I don't know (laughs) what that's like, but I, I know sort of parallel types of pain that give me better ministering tools to to walk with somebody in their difficult road. Yeah, thank you. I think there are a lot of, you know, structural changes that could be made that we have no control over, right? About who gets callings and when and but one thing that was small and I think that could make a big difference is is our response when someone receives a calling. Is that kind of it seems like unconsciously kind of 
creates this culture around achievement and callings. And so, so you talk specifically about not congratulating someone when they, when they get a calling. So what else can you say? I think maybe that just is what comes out because, you know, like you want to acknowledge that there, there's this thing happening in their life is they're going to give this time and you want to, you know, you're feeling something and you want to connect and acknowledge. But, and so I think sometimes what comes out is like, congratulations. (laughs) So what else can you say when, when you want to acknowledge I think at times congratulations is appropriate. It's kind of an umbrella term that recognizes what's happened here. But I think it's a great question. I think you just say, I support you. I sustain you. How can I help you um, cheer for their success? Even if you might feel passed over um, Mm -hmm. or feel you could have done the same calling. Um, So I think it's a balance between you want to help that person feel supported and they're nervous. (laughs) And they need our love and support as well as just um, not elevating them. Sometimes I think we can do better in prayers in church. I've said some prayers in church where I've prayed for the nursery leaders and the people Mm -hmm. that lock up the building at night and the bishop and the Relief Society president. So I think we kind of have a culture type of prayer where we pray for the leaders and our ward and stake. And that's great. And those tend to be men, but it's kind of there's no reason we couldn't pray for other people and other callings that may yeah. not be as high profile. Yeah. They may need our prayers too. Yeah. I love that you mentioned sort of being, I, I'm not sure if you were, I feel like maybe you were drawing on some, someone else's ideas. I can't remember about, about, um, you know, looking for, if you, if you are in a position of leadership that maybe look for opportunities to grow other people into leadership positions, as opposed to using the same 10 people, which sometimes just sort of rotate leadership callings. And, you know, and, and obviously not everyone gets to make that decision, but I thought that was a great, you know, small way to just sort of like reorient all of our thinking. Yeah. And the only time I've seen that done is my mission president. Really? Um, Ellis Ivory, who was 38 when I served my mission 35 years ago. So this guy's 80 years old. I'm 60. My mission president's about my same age now, it feels like. <laughs> But he decided to break the culture of a mission ladder. So we, instead of going from junior companion to senior companion to whatever, he broke it up. And you could be a zone leader one day and a junior companion another day. And that happened to me. And it was just part of our culture. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it, it focused us less on climbing the mission ladder and bringing people to Christ. And I think it elevated the mission aggregate leadership because we just had mm-hmm. more people serving and not just people that you'd see serving, but sometimes there's people that can serve, but those those gifts are a little muted because they don't they don't maybe shine as much in our classroom. And given the chance, they have those gifts in, in spades, if that's a good term. And so I think we, if we're calling people, we should maybe not always just call who's in that circle that we know will serve well. There might be some people that have never been called that would do a terrific job. And it may elevate the whole ward or stake leadership because you're giving more women and men a greater chance to serve. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think something notable about the chapter that was written in your book on women is that you didn't write it. Um, you asked uh, Susan Hinckley and Cynthia Winward to write it. Right. Um, and I think you alluded to this a little bit, but I wanted to ask, why did, you, why did you ask them to write it? And then what were some of your most memorable takeaways from that chapter? Well, that's a chapter that, you know, I read and I thought, this makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Mm. And I thought, I wish I had done better. And I wish I'd read a chapter like this 20 or 30 years ago. 
because I've it, it's a space that's still new for me to understand how Latter-day Saint women's experience is different than men. But I just felt like women ought to be writing this chapter. I did add a little bit at the end, and I'm not sure I should have because it was sort of like <laughs> the man getting the last word. I kind of used that vocabulary. I hope I'm yeah. not. Well, you did not in give, a correcting way. It was I a, wanted it was... to give them air cover for the great <laughs> chapter they wrote. Yeah. And I hope everybody in the church could read um, those yeah. two wonderful women's words and other women because they're support of our church, our doctrine. Everything I write is support of our church and doctrine. But within that space, what can we do to improve? Yeah. And there's a lot of Latter-day Saint women that feel their voices aren't as valued and their potential is not as valued. And there's so many things we can do. And there's wonderful things our leaders have said that invite us to do these, but sometimes what Cynthia and Susan do is sort of take us to what we can do on a ward or stake level and make it more actional than just theoretical. So yeah. they're terrific women doing wonderful work with their podcast. It was just great to see that modeled in in real time. You know, it would have been such a different chapter if you had been telling <laughs> us to do that, you know, listen to women and, and amplify their voices. And I really, really appreciated that you really stepped aside and let them and let them write the whole thing and just say, you know, point out what was important to them in their own voice as opposed yeah. to, you know, relaying. Because I think that is the comfortable way to hear over the pulpit and from a man. And it was it was really nice to just see that modeled in the book. So that yeah. was special. And we should probably point out that their podcast is called At, At Last, Last She Said It. Yeah. Yes. Everyone should check it out. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I have, this is kind of a sensitive one. And I hope it's okay if I go here, but I, you... um just persuaded me that this is really important to talk about. So you have a, a chapter where you um, you bring up this this problem that came up in your why. I think you were serving as the YSA bishop at the time, and you realized that you were surprised to find that a lot of the YSA members in your in your ward um, felt like masturbation was not something they had ever heard talked about, and. So they, what happened is they sort of started to believe that this was a major sin and that they were the only ones committing this offense. And what you saw was that that shame and self-loathing that resulted was was actually the bigger problem. And so I feel like we got to, I want to talk about it because I, I, I know that that is the case, that there are still people who are listening to this who, who have not heard someone address this this topic. So will you talk about how you handled that in your ward as the bishop? Great question. You framed it up so well. <laughs> okay. So good job. I, I, it's chapter four, ending pornography use, and I felt I couldn't write that chapter without talking about masturbation, just because that's often part of the pornography cycle. And I, I just was kind of surprised because the church really isn't talking about masturbation. There's nothing sort of saying this is how serious a sin it is. The church is teaching and I teach it's a sin. But it's sort of just left up to fathers or priesthood leaders or just nothing being told for young and young men and young women to decide how serious this is. So some of these young people would come to me and I remember a couple in particular, they wanted to confess something and it took them multiple interviews. And I thought, I kind of was preparing myself for an Alma the Younger mm. type situation and they were confessing masturbation. And I just, my heart broke for them because they've been carrying that needless shame and self-loathing and feeling they're outside of Heavenly Parents' love with no context for this sin. And I looked to the handbook. The handbook lists major sins. This isn't listed as a major sin, so I conclude it's a minor sin. I write in the book, I'm not sure it needs to be confessed to a bishop. I, it could be if it's helpful, but 
I sort of talk in the book about talking. I mean, there's a lot in the, there's a fair amount in the books to read about that. All trying to do the best I can to talk about this subject, but I sort of started to tell the YSAs that on a sexual sin scale, this is like a two or a three. But you're you're feeling the shame and guilt of a category eight or nine sin, and that's where Satan's winning with you. Mm-hmm. To your point, um, yes, it's a sin, and there should be some guilt associated with that that wants you to move forward. Guilt is a positive thing. It's forward looking. It looks through the atonement. It's full of hope. Shame is Satan's tool to isolate you and to keep you looking backward. And whatever that sin any of us have, that's where Satan wins. So I just felt impressed to talk about masturbation. I just, in a way, to not normalize, you know, I don't think talking about it normalizes in a way that increases um, this, but it just gives YSAs and pre-YSAs and parents context to talk mm-hmm. about this yeah. so that people can move forward in a much more healthier way. Yeah. 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 And without shame, I thought that was such an important message. And I really like this um, way you sort of set up godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow, because I think that helps you sort of filter what you're experiencing if there if there is shame. You know, is this something that is is closing you down and making you feel hopeless or or are you experiencing a kind of guilt that feels like a spark that, you know, you want to change and move forward? So I want to talk about how we can do repentance better. I mean, do as a community, like how can we teach and talk about repentance in a way that is healing and not destructive? I think sometimes this is maybe, or, you know, I think it's later in the book, you talk about things that, um, principles that are taught versus caught. Who is that? that who's, I can't remember who's, who teaches that. Some, it was like a, a 70, I feel like that did a training. With I can't you that remember. It was something about like, you know, some, some things we explicitly teach and some things we just sort of absorb. Yeah. And so I think repentance is definitely one of those topics where we may just be, you know, if, if, for example, masturbation is not talked about. You sort of absorb that it must be that shameful. Like it must be oh, so bad. Nobody's point. even nobody is even it. talking about it because nobody's doing it. Like that's why we're not talking about it. So talk about how we can do repentance in a way that is healing and that doesn't cause that worldly sorrow that that pe- makes people feel like they want to just shut down. Well, um, chapter four is ending pornography use, and that is ba- and I sort of expanded an Ensign article I wrote for the Ensign. Chapter five is hope filled repentance, and that's also based on an Ensign article, um, just an expanded version of that. But I I love the word hope. I just think mm. I look at repentance as this wonderful process. Um, everything I the prodigal son is the worst case scenario of repentance. So. To answer your question, I think if you look at the prodigal son, and Michael Wilcox taught me this. This is where I learned this. Mm-hmm. And Michael Wilcox, one of your guests, that's sort of the worst case scenario. Um, and I won't go too deep in that just in interest of time, but it's he sold his father inheritance and life of riotous living. And he, and he had that came unto his moment, I'm going to come back. But he said, I'm going to come back as a servant. So he self-concluded that he's going to forever be different. And then Michael teaches us that he – that the Savior set that up to be the most impactful it could be because that, that father in the field, which represents our heavenly parents or the Savior, that's how they feel when we come back. So here's the son that's thinking he's coming back as a servant in his worst case scenario. And there's our heavenly parents and our Savior running towards him. And he's stunned. I think he's just absolutely stunned. Why are you treating me this way? I sinned against heaven and the I'm no more worthy to be called my son, and then Michael Wilcox point out, he puts a robe on his shoulder and a ring on his finger to say we come back as a son or daughter. Mm-hmm. And so to me, the that's as 
Michael talks about this as beautiful as literature gets. Yeah. And I put that in the book because to me, that teaches the principle of repentance. I think our Savior loves to forgive. Um, there's two parables that preceded that parable, the parable of the lost coin and the lost sheep. The person that found something celebrates. So the Savior's already paid the price. Sometimes culturally we teach that the Savior's burdens is added to every time I mess up. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's correct. He's already paid the price. It's And so when we take advantage of something he's already paid the price for, he celebrates. He's happy. And he's grateful we're taking advantage of his greatest gift, the thing, the sacrifice that he made to make that gift possible. So that to me is hope-filled repentance. And to me, and so they just the, you know, there's just so much more we can do. And I think a lot of, one of the gifts, there's a lot of authors in both of these chapters that talk about their journey with pornography and repentance, but one talks about the spiral staircase. He's been working through pornography for a long time, Hayden. And one of the myths of this is every time he messed up, he thought he was back at the bottom of the spiral staircase. And that all the work he'd done and all the repenting, and he's just now going to reburden the Savior and all the work he's done. But he said in hope-filled repentance, he looked as he was going up a spiral staircase, that he's one day closer to you know putting yeah. this behind him. And messing ups aren't necessarily putting you back to st- stage one. It's part of the learning process to understand what's going on here to help you get to the finish line. And the Savior's walking with you the whole time. Another thought is a lot of YSAs felt like, well, I'm going to go take care of this on my own and then go talk to the bishop or have my heavenly parents because mm-hmm. they're ashamed of me or I'm just going to, but I think our heavenly parents and hopefully our priesthood leaders, I just think they love us wherever we are. Um, even in wor- our very worst personal moments, they want us to turn to them in those moments and they love us. And so I think it's an invitation to not just sort of fix ourselves on our own, but let our heavenly parents walk with us. Our heavenly fathers, we pray to him, walk with us and help us. So I think repentance is really hopeful Yeah, and should be less shameful and more positive. Yeah. I love that. I love that, um, that story of the prodigal son and the image, you know, of heavenly parents or savior, you know, running towards us and, um, you know, putting the ring on our finger and, and all of that. I, the practical reality of repentance, especially it feels like when you're, when it comes to uh, working with a bishop on something, it can feel really different. I think like it can feel a little bit cold and clinical at times. Like, okay, well, the prescription, you know, for this is that you're going to miss the, you're going to miss the sacrament for X number of weeks or months or whatever. And I think part of the problem there is that that's a public thing that you have to do is miss the sacrament. And so much, uh, to me, so much of the difference between guilt and shame can come between can come when, you know, what's your reputation in the community? And if people are seeing you go through this, then that how do you how do you escape shame? You know, so I don't know. Do you have do you have thoughts? On, especially I, I, I worry about youth, especially they're so vulnerable and like trying to figure out who am I? Am I a good person? Am I a bad person? And they have to go to church and they're not able to bless the sacrament. They're not able to pass the sacrament. In the case of, of boys, obviously, in this case. Um, like, how do we how do, I, we do better here? Um, I, I'm really glad you asked that question, Tim, because I think um, that sort of shame can be the difference between fully participating in the church and maybe stepping away. There's many people that have sort of stepped away with those kind of experiences, just yeah. the shame. I think, to me, the principle behind taking the sacrament is looking— I'm making covenants today looking forward. So most of the YSAs, I would say, would helping 
taking the sacrament, would taking the sacrament help you? Um, it, to me, it's not a penalty for the past. It's something to look forward to. Now, some wise says would say, Bishop, it would really help me not to take the sacrament. It would be give me a goal to work forward to. Others said, I love to take the sacrament. I want to recommit to do better. And so I think I think that could be something you could apply to a home ward too for the youth. You know, we let non-members take the sacrament. We let people that are less than eight take the sacrament. Yeah. So what about a sincere young man or young woman that wants to improve their life? That's the principle here. I think they they con to the bishop. That takes so much courage. Um, if they feel that not taking this, let them self-determine. I think sometimes yeah. I went from sort of the the criminal justice thing where there's six fixed sentences and fixed guidelines to very principle-based repentance, working with the YSA to often decide what was best for them to make their way forward. And it was very unique to their individual situation versus a set time and a set set of restrictions. That that took a while to get there, more in my third year of being a YSA bishop. But I just recognized the spirit working on me and the uniqueness of each situation and desiring not to do what you just mentioned. Um, just it took so much courage to come to my office in the first place. But then yeah. if the rest of the congregation, the family knows that, it doesn't usually help them. So I love that question. I think we can just do better. Now, partic you know, participating in or ordinance like taking a sacrament maybe has a lower hurdle than performing an ordinance like being on the table. So there's some space there just for some thoughtfulness. But you know, I think maybe it's best to talk to the young man or the young woman and say, what's yeah. best for you here? Yeah. And these are some of the things that we could do that are within my responsibility and could sort of counsel together. I love the principle of Elder Ballard's big on this is counsel together. But even in a repentance situation, not just be the bishop that has all the answers and you being the person sitting across the table just sort of taking it. I think you can have this dialogue together. And maybe if you don't agree, you agree to just Talk about it next week yeah. and make sure you're both kind of bought into the right plan for that person based on their feelings in the spirit. Yeah. yeah. What, I mean, what an empowering experience that would be to have a leader who, instead of, you know, delivering a sentence is really like helping you cultivate your own relationship and connection to God. I, that just seems like the most good that could come out of sitting across the desk from someone who's, you know, an authority figure. Um, okay. Let's talk about missionaries who come home early. So you, I I want to just all the things, all the cultural things about missionaries coming home early. You you share some really heartbreaking stories about from from missionaries who talk about like that that this is this was, you know, going back to their ward was the hardest day of their life. And and how of course that shouldn't be the case. Like that should be the that should be the place where they feel the most love and the most support. And you say like, let's stop right now like before another missionary comes home and figure this out because we as a community can do this right. We can do this better. So tell us like what, you know, what kind of things do you say to a missionary who comes home earlier than we expected them? Like they show up and they're they're on Sunday. What do you say? Great question and on Twitter, I'm on Twitter. My kids got me on Twitter. It's a long story and I asked <laughs> I'm the oldest person on Twitter, but I asked this question on Twitter one day, what would you say? And then I put all these responses yeah. in the book. And there were some terrific responses that I didn't even think of. So a lot of that chapter is, you know, the responses of others through social media. Things like, I'm really glad to see you. What a great thing to say to somebody who just walks into, I'm glad to see you. Um, there's a lot of things not to say, like what happened and 
want to know their backstory, just say, I'm glad you're here. And let's go cow tipping. Somebody suggested that was really funny. Um, and no matter how long they serve, just be glad to have them. Don't pressure them to go back. Let them sort of self-determine. Don't make the culture about we're going to get you back on a mission. Just accept them to be back with no agenda on their future. Just say, we're glad to see you. We love you. I think it's also good. We don't spend mental energy trying to figure out the backstory of why they're home. Yeah. Sometimes we rank that between, you know, an obvious physical injury. They come back in a cast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we get it. You're back like, because you're having knee surgery yeah. versus an infield transgression. They actually messed up in the mission field might be one of the worst things. And let's not spend mental energy trying to figure out what happened because I think that keeps us from being ministering to them and helping them their back. And it's none of our business anyway why they're back. So let's just welcome them back. We can even create cultures in our ward and saying, if any a bishop could say this, I just want, you know, I just want anybody to know that if we ever have a missionary come back in our ward while I'm serving as bishop or release study president and others come pray this, this is how we're going to treat them. Mm. And wouldn't it be great for the youth to kind of know that ahead of time or even going out? This is if you come back, this is how we're going to treat you. Yeah. And even parents, as they're sending their daughters or sons off, if you come back, this is how we're going to treat you. And they don't have to play that head game in their mind the whole time. Yeah. So we can just do better in this space. Elder Holland has some wonderful words I quoted yeah. about how we should treat early release missionaries. A lot of this book does have a lot of great leader quotes, but this is sort of the practical application of some of those umbrella quotes. Yeah. One thing Elder Holland says that I want to I want to talk about because this is I think this is so great for any missionary who's come home early. He says, if you serve for four months and someone asks if you're a return missionary, your answer is yes. You don't say yes. And it was this many months like you are a return missionary and you should be able to feel completely proud and confident. And and yes, I served and I sacrificed and no one you don't have to say anything else that you don't want to say. Yeah. And that just felt like so that like so validating, like you don't you're not you're not lying. Like there's nothing you're not hiding anything. Yes, you are a return missionary, period. This is yeah, this is actually a little bit of an unresolved question for me, too. It's just like even the word early feels a little bit hard. Maybe, and this is maybe just my millennial coming out, you know, but like words do have power. And I don't want to asterisk by using by using that term. You know, even as, we, as we've been using it in this podcast, I feel a little bit of discomfort, you know, just because I don't want to, I don't want to put that little that little star by anyone's service and say, well, it's early. Because you know? it sort of implies that we know that they were what meant to be there been. for two years. Yeah. yeah. And, and I agree. Like there are missionaries that are meant to, to be back and this they fulfilled the mission they were meant to serve. And who are we to decide that? We know what their mission was supposed to look like. And I, yeah. Yeah. I so it's that. like, I'm just wondering, and I'm not sure we have an answer here, but like, how do we talk about this issue without labeling? I agree with way? both of what you said. And some of the re writers suggested the same thing. We just don't have better vocabulary right now, yeah. but I love that we'll probably develop better vocabulary. Yeah. And, and maybe we don't even use the word early because that we just welcome people home and there's no sort of time. People just serve for different times. And we're just glad to have them home. Yeah. yeah. And you kind of bring up, and maybe the way that this is going to evolve is that we are seeing sort of a variety of ways to serve with service missions and with length of missions. And so maybe that, maybe that variety is, is going to be the thing that sort of gets us over this, this like benchmark of considering only, you know, full two-year missions as complete missions. And there's some brave people who shared their stories as early release, including somebody had an infield transgression. I mean, he messed up. And I said, do you want me to keep your real name in the book? Some of these names, he said, keep my real name. Wow. And I thought, respect. 
Yeah, it's really and brave. He didn't want any shame. So he just this, and he had some really insightful parts of his story on how we could better support people. We don't need to know that. I'm not saying we should know that, but he was open that that is part of my reality of my experience and why I came home. And these are the kind of things that were really helpful to me for people in my circle that knew the totality of my situation. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this leads quite naturally actually into questions of mental health. And this is something that you've done a lot of work with on your podcast and really appreciated what you said in the book too. And what, what are some of the ways that our culture could do better when it, when it comes to mental health or, you know, a variety of, of mental health issues? Well, normalizing it, we've normalized yeah. ACL injuries and we understand <laughs> how to mourn and bear and comfort somebody that walks in with an ACL tour. You can't play soccer for 10 months. Um, yeah. Golly, that's awful. Yeah. Um, but mental health just has a stigma with it. Um, I did. And so we just were making progress. Elder Holland, once again, was really open with his own mental health and my respect for him only went up. It yeah. didn't de decrease his apostolic mission, but he became the wounded healer, a Henry Noren phrase, where I knew that he had just walked a road of mental health. I've had, I was open in the book about some I call minor health, mental health issues that are ongoing, but on a one to 10 scale or on the one or two. So I don't want to compare that with people that really have significant challenges, but we just need to be able to talk about that um, more in our culture and, and own that within ourselves and just create more community. Um, and same with suicide, Sister Alberto, as you both know, gave an incredible talk about um, her own father who died by suicide and said, talking about suicide in appropriate situations doesn't increase the likelihood someone will die by suicide. So creating a culture where if someone is feeding feelings of suicide can open up and not look at this as a, as a spiritual weakness, yeah. um, that's just something that's so needed right now. And we're making real progress. Yeah. I love that. I, yeah, I do love that just because it's so there's something we can do on a Sunday, you know, like being vulnerable in that way when it's appropriate and and sharing mental health issues that you've had. I think it, it, it instantly it suddenly, you know, it feels like the whole room can breathe a little bit because you see that, you know, this person in front of you is dealing with something that you can relate to. But also, you, you know, you see their strengths, especially when there's a leader, you know, standing at a pulpit and you you're recognizing them in all of their strength in that moment, like hearing that they have dealt with things that you relate to with mental health, I think really validates your own experience and, and just is the most hope giving experience because you see someone who's like been through it and kept going. And I, I just, it feels like the more, the more that we can talk about it together, the more normal, but also hopeful it feels. If that's and what we can experience, you know, on I a agree, Aubrey. And in the book I wrote where I've seen a therapist twice in my life, I think maybe three. My wife may correct me. <laughs> um, but one was during my YSA assignment. And I I remember being grateful that my therapist's office was in a different part of town because mm -hmm. I thought, what would the YSAs think if they saw their bishop oh, wow. walking into therapy? And reflecting on that now, I shouldn't have felt any shame. And in fact, I might have even brought it up during my assignment like Elder Holland did in appropriate situations Perhaps the YSAs would have seen me as more real and approachable if I had talked about that in an appropriate yeah. way. Yeah. And it, vulnerability breeds vulnerability. So if I'm vulnerable in appropriate ways, yeah. even as a church leader, it it allows people to connect with us in an authentic way and open up about the reality of their situation. Yeah, I love that.
Um, talk about testimony meetings for a minute. I really love you. You um, talk about this Twitter poll that you did where you just kind of, I mean, this is a very random poll, but you got quite a few responses and, and you were asking them to, if they had to choose what they say that they know the church is true, do they believe, do they hope, are they not sure? And, and you, you kind of point out this, this huge discrepancy that we have, you know, there were, what was it like half of the respondents said that they feel like they could say they know. Is that right? It was less than half. It was like 41%. Less than half. Yeah. But you show up on in a testimony meeting and that is what you hear over and over again. So talk about how we could do testimony meeting in a way that would help people feel like they belong wherever they are. I think we need to, that poll was of active Latter-day Saints. So it wasn't just Twitter in general. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They had to be an active Latter-day Saint. 99% did not believe. No, was it even temple recommend holders? It may have been. I think it was even current temple temple recommend holders. holders. I think you're right, Aubrey. So I was surprised that less than half, you're right, Tim, didn't say no. Um, 10% said hope. And so I think we need to normalize different testimony types. It's back to Elder Uchtdorf, what he taught. But culturally, in a lot of testimony meetings, you just you hear the I know the church is true. If you've got that kind of a testimony, keep sharing that kind of testimony. But if you have an I believe or I hope or I'm not sure, we need to normalize that kind of testimony too. But but kind of, because I believe behind each testimony type is probably the very same person doing their very best to honor their covenants, come mm-hmm. unto Christ. There's just different spiritual gifts we have. To some, it's given to know. To some, it's given to believe. It's kind of back to the round peg square hole. If we just create round holes where there's only spots for people that I know the church is true and they're looking around and they're a square peg and there's no place for them, they may just conclude people like me don't belong here. There's no space for somebody that doesn't have an I know the church is true testimony. So I just think we need to create space and normalize different types of testimonies. Yeah. I love that. I um I want to ask this is sort of an overall question and it's a little bit of a hard question. And I apologize Good. in advance. We like that. hard questions. <laughs> okay. Um you use a quote that's really beautiful throughout the book and you, that um who is this from? Oh, Sister McConkie. Sister Carol McConkie. Carol McConkie, yes, thank you. Um, she says, the gospel of Jesus Christ does not marginalize people. People marginalize people, and we have to fix that. And I think that's certainly true. Like, we, like people do marginalize people. But I know that there are listeners out there who are thinking, well, what about certain things that are sort of embedded in the doctrine, like, for example, LGBTQ people who cannot simultaneously, you know, have a marriage and family according to their sexual orientation and live, you know, fully the the principles of, of the church. It's like, okay, that seems like a sort of a, a non-cultural thing that is putting people on the margins or something as simple as, well, non-temple recommend holders in a lot of cases can't go to their children's weddings, you know, or whatever. Like that's not cultural in, you know, in a lot of ways. So like, how do you, I don't know, how do you think about some of those things that arguably come from Doctrine or policy? Great question, Tim. And I think a lot about that on my morning walks. Um, I like to do analogies. This analogy isn't in the book, but I sometimes think of a a pool that the water represents the doctrine of our church and the outside of the pool that touches us as we lean back is the culture. And under the waterline, sometimes we had a rough spot and that's the culture. The structure that kind of holds the pool together is our leaders with the priesthood and the priesthood keys. That makes the doctrine possible. But the, 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 the benefit of the pool is the healing water of the pool, mm. pure spring water that's the restored doctrine that I talk about in the book that brings hope and healing that's unique that came to the prophet Joseph Smith. 
Now, I don't believe that pool is 100% pure spring water yet. Um, I believe um, our, our restoration is ongoing. That includes the culture that I address in the book and probably will continue to talk about. It includes improving the structure as our organization gets stronger. But I am open, and that's a great example, that the, the water, I, I'm not a leader of the church or no Heavenly Father's will, so I don't know how close to 100% it is. But it seems like in my lifetime, doctrinal changes have occurred to further purify the water. Some will call them policy adjustments, but I think there's doctrinal changes that have occurred in the history of our church and during my lifetime. Yeah. And I am open to continued doctrinal changes. I don't think that makes me a less faithful Latter-day Saint to feel our doctrine could change. That seems to be our doctrine, in fact, that it's an, right, ongoing, an restoration ongoing restoration and Article of Faith 9. Where I draw the line is I don't sort of advocate for doctrinal changes or say I know better than know God's will of the leaders. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to create space for people that privately believe or share with someone I really think our doctrine needs to change. I think it's not the it's not the culture of the pool that's causing me pain. It's the it's the water yeah. in yeah. the pool. And an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint may fully say that's what the issue I have. Yeah. It's it's the water isn't pure spring water for me because I can't fully participate in the church and have a life partner. Yeah. So that's a really good question and that may work for some of your listeners to frame it up that way it may not. Yeah. That's kind of the what I best I can do to sort of answer that question. Yeah. I like that. And I like that, you know, there's even if there are doctrinal things that are marginalizing people like this is still the culture is still our job. You know, like this is this is still in our sphere of influence. This is something that we can be working to changing. And maybe that's the first step anyway. So I like that you've identified these things that are that are totally, you know, every single thing in your book is something that we as lay members of the church can start to 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 purify. Totally. And that's a good principle because a lot of people want to change a lot of things. And I invite people to say, do what's in your circle of control. You don't need to write a book or start a podcast or do what you're doing or I'm doing. Don't feel overwhelmed because you're not doing what other people are doing to improve the culture. Do what you can do in your circle of control. It may just be one or two people in your quorum yeah. or Relief Society and be at peace that that's what you need to do. I love that. Yeah. And we're about out of time, but I, I have one more question. I really I don't want to talk about chapter seven. Oh, okay. Well, let's do that, and yeah. then I have one okay. more that yeah, we, yeah. we've got to talk about the, the sifters. <laughs> yeah, let's, do to, it. let's talk about chapter seven. Chapter yeah. seven is a special chapter. Um, it's chapter. It could have been buried in chapter six about mental illness, but we decided to pull it out. Yeah, yeah. thank about you. About overcoming I, religious scrupulosity. Yeah. Um, or OCD, and this is a story that I share about our own son Ben who left on his mission, and we just thought this kid was as prepared as any kid we knew. We're kind of bragging his parents. And then scrupulosity was sort of this undiagnosed ticking time bomb within his body, within his soul going on yeah. in Samoa. And, and Tim came in, listeners, for a podcast. I'd listened to you on Faith Matters, and I thought I'd love to have you two on the podcast. So you came to my home in Salt Lake and became episode 199, but in the back of my mind, I'm praying as a father how to help my son. And I don't know what's going on here. There's missing pieces of the puzzle. He's in a really dark place, confessing and confessing and concluding he's not worthy. And I open up to both of you. And Tim said, let me tell you about scrupulosity. And I put a, you were then on the podcast and just talked about it spontaneously yeah. for the last 20 minutes of episode yeah. 199. And my wife transcribed that podcast and sent it to our son, Ben. And you may have saved his life. 
and you were an answer to our family prayer, Tim. And he just felt like, okay, we got a diagnosis of then what it was, which was an answer to prayer. But then he found a mentor in you that could walk with him. And I know he emailed you and talked to you as a really safe person as he was working through his scrupulosity. So you too will forever have a place in our heart at the Osler family for answering particularly my wife. Mom's prayers sometimes go further than father's prayers. But it's just needless suffering that you've been vulnerable about to talk about in the podcast. And we've transcribed a lot of that podcast and put it word for word in this book because your words are so powerful and people need to read your words, but there's just needless suffering occurring because of scrupulosity. And we need to understand that. I wish I'd known about that before I was a wise a bishop, before I was a father. So I encourage everybody to get educated on scrupulosity. Yeah, Google it. Yeah. Google it. Google it right now. So yeah. Yeah. Thank, thank you for doing yeah. a separate chapter. This is something that we literally get messages about every single week. Yeah. And, it just feels like the more people are familiar with it, the more, it's just needless suffering. Yeah, like if you've just heard of it, that's enough to 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 heal, like to to begin healing. And Tim, you guys, you know, Tim can say this himself. He wants to add on, but Tim basically concluded on his mission that he was beyond salvation, but he stayed because he thought he could bring others salvation, and that's where scrupulosity puts you. Yep. Yeah. And of course, if you could talk to your younger self now, yeah. But no one, I mean, you've walked an incredible road to finish that mission where you were. You're one of my heroes. But thank you for helping other people not have to walk the road you walked. Yeah. Well, I want to sincerely thank you, Richard, because I feel like ever since this um, issue has come onto your plate, you have been a tireless advocate for it. And that means so much to me as um, someone that's gone through it. And it it was the darkest, uh, most hopeless part of my life. And it was was from… Day one of my mission to day 700, what was it? What would, what would the math be here? <laughs> 730. Um, and I, it's, it's an urgent, it's an urgent issue. Um, because if you just think about the number of missionaries that we have out there, 60,000 plus, you know, there are thousands of missionaries out there who are feeling this and they're, they're hiding it. They're, um, they're suicidal Yes, in many cases. Um, they don't know what's going on in their heads. They think that it's the spirit telling them that they need to confess, or they think it's Satan putting thoughts in their heads. And um, there's, I, I think light is the best disinfectant. Like yeah. the more we can get this message out. And I, I just want to say thank you again, Richard, because you've done so much to be so public about this um, that I think, you know, we, we need to get to the point where there's not a missionary going out or a mission president going out that hasn't heard about this. And that hasn't, um, that's not prepared for it and might have tools to deal with it when it comes up because it's coming up and it's, it must be coming up at so much higher rates than the Wikipedia article about OCD says, because when we did our art, our episode about OCD it was somewhere in the sixties, I think maybe 61, um, we had so many people reach out to us so many more than the one to 2% that the Wikipedia article states, you know, that, that have gone through this and it's, you know, there's there's something in the air, in the culture that we need to fix, you know, um, but perhaps, but that might be a long-term project. Uh, so let's keep working on that. But at the very least, let's let everyone know about this demon that is rearing its head for these young and vulnerable missionaries. And let's give people tools to work yeah. with it. And that's what you've done here. And I just 
Thank you so much, Richard. Well, yeah. you know, it's just, uh, I agree with you, Tim. I wish um, it was part of mission prep. Yep. I mm-hmm. wish it was part of bishop prep and <laughs> yeah. temple Yeah, it's not just missionaries. And, it's not just missionaries. And means. listeners, you understand when someone feels their hands are dirty, they wash their hands. That's the compulsion, and that really gives temporary relief. But with scrupulosity, the confession gives temporary relief. Yep. But it's reinforcing the cycle. It's digging the hole deeper. Digging yep. the hole deeper. So exposure rethought therapy, and I'm not a therapist, is learning to live with, you know, uncertainty. I mean, uncertainty. Yeah. It's I didn't understand any of this. I would have I just know I added to people's burdens because I reinforced the confession cycle with some of my YSA. So we could talk a lot about this, and that's probably enough said, but yeah. I'm glad we're talking more about it as a as a church. It's yeah. so I think it's so outside of the cultural expectation and stereotype that we have for a bishop to, to hear a confession <laughs> and say, well, maybe you did do that thing. You know, maybe you sinned yeah. and maybe you're going to, you know, maybe you're going to the celestial kingdom, you know, but like from a therapeutic perspective, that is the answer. You cannot give that reassurance. And it's so, yeah. it's so hard because when you love someone, of course you want to reassure them and it does help in the moment, you know, but trust me tomorrow, it, tomorrow that feeling's coming back and it's going to be harder to dig out of than it was today. And I think that's part of why it's so important that in the church, we really take responsibility and learn about this because we're often in as leaders in the position of receiving those confessions. Yes. And if you've never heard of it, you actually have so yes. much power to do harm without realizing. Exactly. Yeah. So that's chapter seven listeners. And there's articles and references there um, just to learn more about this outside of what I've just written in the chapter. Yeah. yeah. We've got to wrap up, but I want to okay. just end with one um, question about doubt. I love the chapter at the end about doubt. And and you talk about how um, oftentimes in the church, we equate people who have doubts as the elect who are being deceived. So just let's, can we end there and and, and just talk about, do you think that that metaphor is useful in no. the situation? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a and that's the end. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, I, I went through many faith crises as a YSA bishop. I'm open about that. Um, I had some dominoes that fell, and they hit dominoes really deep with deep roots that keep me. But I recognized that some of the narrative I had created about people like me didn't apply once mm-hmm. I was actually in the space because I was doing everything I could to serve and bring people unto Christ. So I think we need to normalize questions. Um, quest- Joseph Smith started the restoration with a question. Mm-hmm. And we need to normalize people just being able to talk openly about church history, about current issues and the walls of our church. And I think a quorum leader, Relief Society president, a bishop needs to create a culture where I think it starts at the top of the ward of the stake. There's wonderful quotes from Elder Ballard in particular that sort of gives air cover. And you could say, this is how, this is the kind of culture we want to have in Relief Society or Elders Quorum or Young Men's or Young Women's or Award. This is a safe place to answer, ask questions. Yeah. We're not going to then call you the elect that's going to be deceived, right. the terrors. You're on the slippery slope to apostasy because you're asking honest questions. And and create a culture where we say kind things about people with questions. Mm. And we don't point to them. It's scary to ask questions sometimes and learn about our history. But I think we have enough. I think if we're confident enough in our doctrine and our restored doctrine, we can you know, have these kind of discussions. Yeah. So it's just some thoughts on that. I love that. Like we, it it seems like, you know, we often blame the questions for squeezing people out, but you know, how much is it, is our culture just pushing people out because of how we, what we make it mean. And some guests have coined this term for me. They don't have a faith crisis. They have a belonging crisis. 
maybe you've talked about too, where they yeah. have a basically yeah. fundamental testimony of, the, of our restoration, but people like them just don't feel welcome. They yeah. might not be part of the dominant political party. They may not be part of the group that's sort of the all is well. We're at the finish line. We're not going to look inward at all to see how we can do better. They just don't feel yeah. like they belong. Yeah. I, yeah. That's what I got from this book. It was like, this is a manual for helping people to feel like they belong. It was just- Love that. and Which Love I feel you. like is all of your work. Like we, you're doing such great work helping us to recognize places where we can be more inclusive and yeah. inviting. Well, I think so. about Zion a lot. To, I grew up in a very homogeneous environment in Salt Lake, and I thought that's what Zion was. My grandmother just said, I hope everybody lives in the same zip code. <laughs> and that was, but I recognize that you understand this, that Zion is not sameness. Zion is diversity and unity, and it's taking all this diversity, including LGBTQ Latter-day Saints, Black Latter-day Saints, all the people that were out of my circle growing up in my homogeneous environment. Yeah. I now love that world um, of diversity, diversity in thought. One heart and one mind doesn't mean we're all the same as Latter-day Saints or that we're all in the same spot with our testimony. But the city of Enoch, to me, got translated not in sameness, but in unity, there was no poor among them. Mm. Yeah. And they were lifting the hands of those that needs their hands listed. That is Zion, not sameness, yeah. <laughs> not all of us being the same political party, but it's the work you're doing here at Faith Matters to bring us together. Thank you. Thank you, Thank well, you so much. And Richard, nobody exemplifies truly listen, learn, and love better than you do. You're, you're one of our heroes. So thank, thank you. you for doing yep, this. Love you. Thank, thank you. you, Tim and Aubrey. Okay. Okay, thanks so much for listening, and we really hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Richard Osler. If you'd like to hear more from Richard, you can, of course, check out his podcast, Listen, Learn, and Love, wherever you subscribe. And again, if you'd like to check out his books, head to Deseret Book or Amazon. And if Faith Matters content is resonating with you and you get a chance, we'd love for you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you listen on. It really helps get the word out about Faith Matters, and we really appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening, and as always, you can check out more at faithmatters.org.